Today we're in Proverbs chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, let's open up there. As tonight we cover this chapter a lot here, we're not going to be able to go in depth, um, but we're going to see in verses 1 through 5, wisdom over wealth. And one of the things you'll see when we cover the book of Proverbs is that God wants us to be um, blessed financially. He wants us to be good stewards. I know that when things are strained financially, I mean, it hits us even in one sense, it can hit us emotionally and spiritually. And the devil can use that as ammunition and create stress on your marriage. And so uh, we want to be wise with our wealth. And so we'll talk about that. In verses 6 through 11, we're going to see wisdom over work. And so we all can uh, relate to that and how we need to be hard workers. And the Proverbs talks a lot about that as well. And then in verses 12 through 19, we're going to see wisdom over wickedness. And in that section right there, we're going to see how there are wicked men out there. There are wicked women out there that we need to be aware of. We need to stay away from. And there are wicked things out there that the enemy uh, tempts us to get involved in. And so uh, it's so cool, man, when you're a Christian, you know, and you know the word and you're, you're letting the Proverbs sink in. I think I've shared with you many times that me growing up, uh, still today, I lack common sense. And I didn't have anyone to guide me in life and to give me advice. I never really had anyone pouring into my life. It wasn't until I became a Christian and as I started reading God's word and especially the Proverbs that God began to show me these principles that are so important. Uh, They will preserve you. They will uh, protect you from unnecessary heartache and they will even guide you all the way to heaven. And so these are really things that we deal with, wealth and work and wickedness And then the last section in verses 20 through 35, wisdom over the immoral woman and also the immoral man and how the enemy uses that as it's very enticing, you know, like if you're on a diet, uh, most of you probably like chocolate, you know, or cake or or something like that. And if that's right in front of you, the flesh, it's it's hard to say no. Um, In certain situations, we're going to see that that sexual intimacy has been used by the enemy outside of marriage to ruin many lives and so that's why it's so cool to be able to study the proverbs together and you're like well i've already heard it before listen these are things that every single man especially but we all need to hear this over and over and over again because my prayer is that you would die with integrity that you will not fall to this sin And so we begin reading in verse 1, wisdom over wealth. And we're going to talk specifically about being a co-signer. Notice what we read in verse 1. He says, my son, if you become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands in a pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself. For you have come into the hand of your friend Go and humble yourself, plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Here here we see that the scriptures tell us the danger 
of co-signing, uh, whether it be for a friend or, or even I think at sometimes, you know, for a family member. He's saying, and we don't want to water it down. We don't want to say, yeah, but no, he's just saying, don't, don't do it. That's what the Bible says, because then you're trapped, uh, you're taken by that agreement. And to be trapped or taken, that doesn't sound good. Now, co-signing is something we see very common today. Uh, there's a chart that I was reading. It says that uh, 45% of those who co-sign, they co-sign for their children or stepchildren. Uh, 21% actually co-sign for a friend. Uh, 14% of those who co-sign, they co-sign for a, a spouse or partner. I thought that was kind of funny because for me, when it comes to finances, if you're married, they should be together. You shouldn't have separate finances, but there are some people out there who have it that, that situation. Uh, 7% of those co-signing, they co-sign for their parents, 6% uh, for their grandchild, uh, 6% for a brother or sister, 6% for a boyfriend or a girlfriend, uh, and then 9% uh, for others. And basically what the, the Proverbs tells us is that it's not a good thing to do. Now some might say, well, what about my kids? And I know there are exceptions out there, but you have to be really, really careful. You know, Chuck Smith has this motto. He says, where God guides, God provides. And so a lot of times just the whole concept of getting in debt is something that you have to guard against. Maybe rather than co-signing for your child to get a brand new car, maybe you can encourage them to save up for a used car. I mean, things like that, you know, to where you're teaching them the right thing. Uh, Chuck Smith said, where God guides, God provides. He also said it's a bad idea to co-sign for family because a lot of times what that does is it messes up relationships. Now, does that mean you can't, you know, for your, you know, kids? I mean, that's between you and the Lord. Back then, it was a little different. Back then, when you shook hands, that was your signature, and uh, you became a co-signer or a surety for someone else, and that person didn't pay, back then, they could take you and they can drag you to debtor's prison. And so it was a little different, but still, the principle is the same. Uh, be so careful in co-signing. You know, when I was a, a new Christian, I remember uh, I had a, a someone, a brand new a believer, or at least I thought they were a believer, and they didn't have a place to live, and so, you know, they found an apartment, but they needed someone to co-sign for them, and so I, I thought that would be the right thing to do, the noble thing to do, and uh, it ended up being that this individual had no intention, really, of paying the rent. And so as a young uh, husband, uh, starting a brand new family, making that mistake, uh, it hurt us. So we ended up paying over $3,000 uh, as a result. And so, again, it's not just about the money. It's about responsibility. It's about relationships. And so right here, he says, if you're in that situation, be like a gazelle that's fleeing from the lion. Amen. Deliver yourself from the hunter. When he, when he talks about pleading there, the Hebrew word, it means like prostrating yourself. I mean, pleading to, to be able to get out of that situation. And so uh, something that we need to take to heart, uh, again, Proverbs says it over and over again. In Proverbs 11, verse 15, it says, He who is surety for a stranger will suffer, but one who hates being surety is secure. 
Proverbs 17, 18, it says, A man devoid of understanding shakes hands in a pledge and becomes surety for his friend. And Proverbs 22, 26, it says, Do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge, one of those who is surety for debts. And so what do we do? We deliver ourselves. Now, again, like it was worse in those days, it was more severe, um, but we see the principle is still the same for us. I was looking up, some of you guys are familiar with Dave Ramsey. He's a financial advisor, and I was kind of finding out what did he have to say, and he was even more uh, aggressive, more, you know, no uh, than me. You know, he was talking about a situation where one of his children wanted to, to buy a house, and uh, he was saying, okay, the, there's a situation. I'm going to give them you know, 20% of the down payment, and I'm going to co-sign for them. And uh, Dave Ramsey said no. And it has to do with the whole financial picture. Here's, here's, I guess, the way it works at the end of the day. If you're able to lose all that, you know, the, the whole shebang, you know, whatever, the, the whole uh, amount, then maybe you're in a financial situation where you can do it. But even then, you know, you have to really pray, Lord, is this the right thing to do? Because those are not our finances. Those are God's. And a lot of times we can get in the way of what God wants to do because we have not really prayed about things. And so Proverbs talks about being wise over wealth. And then secondly, being wise over work. Notice what we read in, in verses 6 through 11. It says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. You know, interesting, um, this, this is life. You know, financially, God wants to bless. God wants to see, hey, there's a good steward there. So it won't be like a strain in your life. Now, I'm not saying everybody who's a Christian is going to be rich, but when he sees that you're a good steward, uh, you're going to be taken care of. You're going to be blessed financially, and you'll be blessed vocationally. I mean, when you're a hard worker, when you're a hard worker, God is going to do a great work in your life. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's almost a shame here, the revelation regarding the severity of the fall of man, that we have been degraded to the point of having to be taught Bible truths by bugs. <laughs> You want to learn how to be a good worker? Look at the ant. Instructed by insects. That's what we need now, you know? But, but I think um, it is helpful. You know, when you look at the ants and you see the way they work so hard. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen an ant take a break. You know, you ever seen an ant standing still? I mean, absolutely not. But doesn't mean we don't necessarily take a break, but we do learn from their industriousness. And so actually at this point, I want to show you a little video of, of some ants that were working. Uh, years back, Shelly and I took a trip uh, to South America with Pastor Raul and some of the guys. And uh, there's a brother, you're going to hear his voice in, in the video, Joaquin. He's also a pastor. 
but I think uh, we're going to be able to show you this video uh, about how these ants work so hard. And so let's see if it works. Wow. My, these ants are working hard. Are you making a video? Yeah. If you can make me one CD to show it to my girls how they work. Yeah, bro. I was going to take a picture, but it's not going to. That is crazy. That's wow. so cool. <laughs> I have never seen this. You never seen this? Not like this. I mean, you know, usually they're smaller and they're carrying now, smart things. You have an illustration when you teach Proverbs what he says that idea to learn. Joaquin said it right there. He said, now you have an illustration <laughs> when, you, when you teach Proverbs. And uh, there in South America, the ants were, were really big, but um, you know, carrying these huge things that were way bigger than them. And what, it, what Solomon says is, is, look at the ant. Look at the way they work. He says, no one has to tell them, okay, chop, chop, breaks over, get back to work. Number one, notice their inner motivation. Their inner motivation. Verse 7, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer. In other words, uh, they're not being pushed to work, you know. No, no one has to tell them that their break's over. The ant has a heart to work. It's their inner motivation, the way that God has wired them to work relentlessly, to work productively. And at the end of the day, Christians should be the hardest and most faithful workers because of the fact that we're aware that ultimately, who do you work for? Ultimately, we work for the Lord Jesus Christ. We serve Him. And even though our boss not, might always be there, uh, looming over us, watching us, you know, um, Jesus is. And we definitely don't want to be those, one of those people who only works hard when the boss is watching. You know, Ephesians talks about that in Ephesians 6, uh, 5 through 6. It says, Workers, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. I remember I used to work with this guy uh, uh, when I first started at the market, and his motto was uh, just to, to do as little as possible and still keep your job. And, and there are some people like that. When, when Jesus told the Christians, no, if they compel you to go one mile, go two. Carry that Roman's you know, equipment another mile. That's supposed to be our heart. You know, even in this uh, whole uh, season of the coronavirus and, and a lot of people are working at home, you know, uh, hopefully their heart has been uh, still, Jesus is watching. Hopefully we have that conviction to where we are, are working the way that, that we should. There has to be, number one, notice we see their inner motivation. And then secondly, we see their thoughtful preparation. Notice again there in verse 8, he says, who provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. And so they, they, they're go-getters, number one, and they're gatherers, number two. And these are important things. As go-getters, they don't sit back with a sense of entitlement saying, hey, 
you know, mom and dad or family or society, you know, they owe it to me. No, they go out and get it, man. They work hard. They, they labor, you know. And, and so, again, as Christians, we bring it all to a balance. Of course, God calls us to give generously to those in need, but not to freeloaders, uh, not to those who are only interested in handouts. No, what we're seeing is that, you know, we learn from the ant. We have to be go-getters. As a matter of fact, Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. Listen, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And so uh, Solomon here encouraging his son, encouraging the readers to be hard workers, to learn from the ant. Warren Risby said this. He said, The biggest thieves of all are the lazy people who could work but don't. The people who consume what others produce but produce nothing for others to use. The sluggard and the slothful man are mentioned at least 17 times in Proverbs and nothing good is said about them. We need to recognize the fact that work is not a curse. God had Adam to do work in the garden even before sin entered the scene. And so, um, I I don't know, I I pray that we would see work as that. I like what one man said. He said, work is the meat of life and pleasure is the dessert. And I think sometimes we have it the other way around. We're like, okay, I'm going to work and I'll kind of give it half-heartedness. But then when there's uh, the, the fun times, that's where I go full bore. And so what we find is that here God is telling us, listen, there needs to be that inner motivation and there needs to be that thoughtful preparation, you know. When there's a genuine need, praise God, that so many are sensitive to the Spirit, but if a man needs to learn to work, we mustn't get in the way of that because we might cripple them for life. And so they're go-getters, number one. And they're gatherers, number two. And that, what that means, I think, at the end of the day, in one sense, is they save their money. They save for a rainy day. You know, and I know that that's not always possible for all of us. The Lord knows our situations. But I, I know of one young man recently who, prior to the pandemic, he had this principle. He said, I need to be a gatherer. I need to be a saver. And so when the pandemic hit, his industry was pretty much shut down. So he was then put on furlough, but he had been wise. He had saved up six months of income in order to carry him through the difficult situation. And so what I would say to you is this. I know there's a lot of things that we think are needs, but a lot of times they're not needs. They're wants. And so look at your budget and factor in a savings part portion in your budget. You know, in one sense, that's what we learn from bugs. That's what we learn from the ants. They're go-getters and they're gatherers and they save for the rainy season. We learn from the ant. We also learn from the slug. And this is kind of a tough one here, but notice it says in verse 9, How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. 
Now, we have some ugly pictures that we're going to show you. You might not want to see this, like some of you girls that freak out on bugs, you know. But, um, you know, we have a picture of a slug and the guy who has a slug face on. And, you know, you've seen the slugs. They're super slow and they're almost gross. And I think when someone doesn't have that heart to work hard, then what the Bible says is that's kind of what we are, man. You know, if all we do is rest and sleep and kick back, according to the Proverbs, our bankruptcy will come suddenly. And in one sense, in that sense, it comes violently. And so a couple of things we learn from the sluggard. Number one, we need to, we need to wake up, right? A lot of times those two go hand in hand. The person doesn't want to get out of bed early. And, and I think there is some truth to that maxim. Early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Even in my age now, you know, I'm already 27 years old and I'm learning these things, how I need to work harder at home. You know, I, I thank God he's always given me a work ethic. Ever since I was a kid, I used to go and mow lawns and I would do things ever since I was young. And then I remember when I used to work at the grocery store, I'd be running while everyone else is walking. I've always had that, that work mentality. Now, I think in the church, I have that conviction too. I always tell my daughter, I think God will kill me if I'm not you know, taking this like seriously. I don't want to kick back. I can. This is God, and these are God's people, and they're giving. you know. And so I have that conviction to work. But then at home, um, that's pretty much lately it's been been kicking in more like hey you got to take care of that fence you got to take care of that that wall you got to pull those weeds and so I, i'm learning how even at home i need to be a better worker and i need to improve in that area and so number one he says wake up wake up uh, proverbs twenty six fourteen says as the door turns on its hinges so does the lazy man on his bed and so you see that lazy man, he's just kind of turning back and forth. And when it's time to get out of bed, though, you know, we need to do that. Uh, I think we all kind of learn our bodies. We should learn how many hours of sleep do you need. Uh, if you need 17, you're in big trouble. And once you get older, like my age, I, I think you can get by with less. But, but we have to be careful with this. Look what it says in Proverbs uh, 24, if you would. Proverbs 24, in verse 30. He says, I went by the field of the lazy man, and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. And you know, here we see, and even in the whole concept of weeds and walls, how uh, that's a, a, a something that of a man, that's a practice of a man, it's a house of a man devoid of understanding. And uh, here's something that I'm kind of grappling with nowadays. Like I do have a wall that's kind of broken down and, uh, and, you know, there is that in the back of my mind, well, I can't really, whatever, you can't fix it, it costs so much money and stuff. But you guys know huh, how it is nowadays. You can learn how to do almost anything 
on YouTube, huh? You can. You go on YouTube, and there are training videos on everything. So I want to learn how to do that cement work and how to put that wall up. Why? Part of it, I think, at the end of the day, is because people know we're Christians. And they're looking, hey, that's where, you know, Manny lives or whatever. That guy, he puts up the Jesus sign every year. And you want to have a, a good witness. And so that would carry over then, he says right here, into your whole life. Be careful, because if you don't work hard, you might end up suffering financially. Now, again, we can't go to the other extreme and be weird and say that we can't sleep because it's a necessary element for a healthy life. Wise people enjoy sleep, the Bible says, because they work hard. We read that in Proverbs 3.24. And Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 12, it says the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. And so, again, sleep is not bad. Sometimes every once in a while we take a nap. Um, but, but be careful even with that. I've noticed sometimes that when I'm studying or whatever, I'm, I'm kind of going through the day and I get a little sleepy. I, there's a little thoughts that go through my mind. Hey, you should take a nap. Sometimes that goes through. And sometimes that's what God wants. But most of the time, the Lord just says, get up, uh, get a little walk going, and you'll find that your, your strength, it, it returns. And so, anyways, we know um, that Christians should be hard workers. Paul was a good example uh, uh, of this for us, laboring abundantly. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he labored more abundantly than they all, he said. But it wasn't him. It was the grace of God working in him. So we want to be working hard for the kingdom. And, of course, we know Jesus is our best example. He's the epitome of this. You know, who knows what his life was like when he was a carpenter? Because we know that could have been hard work back then. But it's interesting. When you read Mark chapter 1, we have an example of him rising before the sun rose in order to pray. And, and then when you kind of look at that whole chapter out there and you kind of see the way that his days would flow, I mean, he would then go out and minister all day long. And then we even see him there in Mark chapter 1 after the sun had set. There he is ministering to all the people. And so for him, uh, well, there wasn't a union, so to speak, um, he was just obedient to his father. And I'm sure there were days where it wasn't as much, but he was willing to work so much that we read in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work. And I believe in my heart that we all have a work that our father has for us. But I believe that more than likely most Christians will not finish the work that God gave them because they don't really have the heart to labor hard. I, I pray that, that we would be willing to, to labor and toil and sweat and experience the sacrifice and the pain that's necessary to labor for the Lord. Now some would say, well, Manny, it's just a matter of metabolism. That guy over there, he's just running on all cylinders. But I would say it's a matter of morals. It's a matter of wisdom. It's a matter of Bible maxims that if we snooze, then we lose. I believe that. You know, one of my favorite Proverbs is uh, something that I learned a, a while back. And sometimes uh, in the morning, to be honest, I don't want to get out of bed. But there's a proverb in Proverbs 20, verse 13. It says, uh, do not love sleep 
lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with bread. And so believe it or not, sometimes I'm there in my bed in the morning. I'm like, oh, Lord, I don't feel like getting up. And then I quote this verse. Uh, Do not love sleep lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you'll be satisfied with bread. And I was thinking primarily the poverty, the, the spiritual poverty that sometimes people experience because they don't want to get out of bed and they don't want to experience blanket victory in order to go and pray and read their Bible because that bread, that satisfaction of bread is the bread that God gives to us when we're in the Word. But we have to labor for it. And so um, we learn from the ant, we learn from the sluggard to wake up or in one sense we're going to get beat up. And so, going through the Proverbs, wisdom in, in, over wealth, wisdom over work, and then thirdly, wisdom over wickedness. Notice what we read next in verse 12. It, it says, a worthless person, a, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly, he shall be broken without remedy. And here, uh, Solomon mentions the the worthless person, the the wicked man. And and just real quick, I want to warn you about wickedness. I think sometimes we look at wickedness and we're not afraid. You know, we, Billy Sunday said we treat it like it's a cream puff. When it's a rattlesnake, wickedness, beware of that wicked man, that wicked influence. What He talks about him here, and he says, listen, that guy right there is not good. And I don't know, even just, um, I remember one time a while back, I was watching the movie The Incredibles, and it was an incredible movie. It was a good movie. I liked it. It was family-oriented, and there was a lot of cool things about it. Um, but at the end of the movie, uh, the kids saw this whole thing happen, and the kids all, that was wicked. And uh, he said it in a positive light. And I just remember, uh, as a Christian, I said, man, he just ruined the whole movie for me. Because Isaiah 520, it talks about when they call evil good and good evil. And then you're like, wow, they're just connotations. No, wicked... Um, I just pray there would be a healthy hatred for wickedness. Uh, The word, just the whole concept, man. We need to know about this wicked man that's trying to enter into your life. We need to know about that. Here, he's called a a worthless person. And they have that King James, it calls him naughty. Uh, there's, There's not a lot of value to him. He's dangerous. The NIV calls him a troublemaker or a villain. It seems like every member of his body is dedicated to wickedness. And you can see it in his walk, the way that he shuffles his feet. You can see it in his, uh, you can hear it in his words, uh, the perversity he speaks. I mean, you can even see it in his eyes, the way he winks or with his fingers, you know, in a, in a cool way, like, you know, hey, you know, looking at you. Or maybe in an accusative way with his wingers, fingers, <laughs> you know. And I, I don't know, but, you know, you got to really be careful of these guys right here. Psalm is saying, watch out for them. 
all those members of the body on the outside reveal what's going on on the inside. We read it there in verse 14. It says, perversity is in his heart. Who he is and what he does and what will happen to him. Well, disaster will come suddenly, the Bible says, instantly. The NLT says, beyond all hope of healing and that without remedy. And so, as far as I know, there's only one place without hope. There's only one place without remedy. And that's a place called hell. And so, uh, again, I think there is that aspect of watch out for that guy. But whatever you do, don't be that guy. Because, you know, you might be winking and, you know, you're shuffling and, you know, you're conniving and you're planning and you're scheming and you're, you're rich. But one day, and it can happen suddenly, the calamity comes. And that's why, you know, if you're out there, if you're listening to this study and you don't have Jesus Christ, man, you need him. I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter what sin you've committed, he will forgive you, he will wash you, he will cleanse you, and he will give you the power to overcome that sin. Because these people that live their life apart from Jesus Christ, one day they will be in a place called hell without hope. And so, man, we don't want to be anywhere near that. Not just the wicked man or woman, but also just wickedness in general. Notice what we read next. Not after the wicked person, we have wicked practices. And these are things that God hates. It says in verse 16, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Now again, uh, we don't have time to go over all these in depth. Uh, I just want to touch on them for now. But there are things that Solomon uh, will deal with in other places in the Proverbs but the one thing that I would pray, because we're, we're going to cover them. Don't worry as we go through Proverbs. But one thing I pray that would penetrate your heart tonight is these are things that God hates. They're, they're an abomination to him. You know, abomination, it speaks of passionate feelings beyond dislike. is to the point of disgust. And we got to see these the way that God sees them and prayerfully will hate them the way that God hates them. Since God hates these things, we should as well. We don't hate the sinner, but we hate the sin. You know, Proverbs 8.13, it says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. I remember... Uh, there was a, a lady that would come up for prayer a lot and her kids were involved in drugs. And I just remember her, her prayer request was always the same. God, I pray that my children would hate drugs. And we just have to hate the things that God hates. That, that helps so much. That's the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Do we hate evil that much? Or do we, ah, it's not that big of a deal. See, that's where, where God's at. Psalm uh, 101, verse 3, it says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. 
I hate the work of those who fall away, and the perverse mouth I hate. Psalm uh, 119, 104 says, Though, Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And it happens to the word, when you understand the word, and then when the enemy comes in and does his thing, we hate every false way. And Psalm 119, 163 says, I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. And so I was reading an article by Billy Graham. I just want to read just a couple of things out of this article that he shares. Uh, Billy Graham, it's an article entitled, Things God Hates. He says, we in the church have failed to remind this generation that while God is love, he also has the capacity to hate. He hates sin and he will judge it with the fierceness of his wrath. This generation is schooled in the teaching about an indulgent, soft-hearted God whose judgments are uncertain and who coddles those who breaks his commandments. This generation finds it difficult to believe that God hates sin. And Billy Graham said, I tell you that God hates sin just as a father hates a rattlesnake that threatens the safety and life of his child. God loathes evil and diabolic forces that would pull people down to a godless eternity just as a mother hates a venomous spider that is found playing on the soft, warm flesh of her little baby. See, God hates those things because he knows what they do to us and how they will destroy us. And so if he, if he hates them, we should hate them as well. You know, a, a proud look. You know, I don't know for sure exactly what that is, but some guy, you know, like, hey, got my head back and whatever. Um, they're staring you down, mad-dogging you. Uh, a lying tongue. God, God hates that, you know, and we're supposed to gird our waist with truth. Always, always speak truth. The Bible says in John 8, 44, that Satan is the father of lies. And I always tell people, when you're a liar, when you lie, you're speaking the language of Lucifer. God hates that. Number three, heads that, hands that shed innocent blood. You know, and that happens a lot out there, but I think uh, of abortion, 125,000 babies being aborted every single day. To me, that's the epitome of that verse. Hands that shed innocent blood. God hates that. A heart that devises wicked plans. You know, it's one thing to fall into sin, but it's another thing to devise it, to plan it, premeditate it. God hates that. God hates feet that are swift in, in running to evil. They're eagle, e eager to do it. A false witness who speaks lies, and that happens in the courts. And then number seven, one who sows discord among brethren. And so God knows that the, the importance of us being united, and God hates it when anyone sows any type of seed, whether it be you know, it's full on, easy to see, or inadvertent. God sees all that, and so God hates that. You know, God is love, yes, but God is also light. And the overriding attribute is holiness. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It doesn't say love, love, love. The Bible doesn't say that. It says holy, holy, holy. 
And so we need to understand that God hates sin. We need to see God in the balanced way that he is. Yes, he is love, but he's also light. There's an interesting uh, passage in Romans 11:22. It says, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. So he's so good, he's so gracious, he's so patient, he's so long-suffering. But listen, if you don't want Jesus, if you're messing with God, then you be ready because he's holy. And so in our study today, we see wisdom over wealth, wisdom over work, wisdom over wickedness. And, and then the final section here, which is a little bit like PG-13, just in case you have kids that are watching, is wisdom over the immoral woman. And so it, it starts in the word, and we're going to just kind of read through this. In verse 20, he says, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And, and to me, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, well, I'm good if I got something, you know, tied around my, my, my neck. I think it's just somebody who's in the Word. Man, they're in the Word all the time, always trying to, to, to learn it and live it. I mean, that's just, this is their, their, their life. You're going to be protected. Even sometimes when you're sleeping or you're not even aware of it, God's going to be guiding you because the Word is just burned inside of you. That's what he's saying here. So whatever you do, don't stop reading your Bible. Don't stop studying it. You know, I don't know if this is true or not, because, you know, when I look at the live stream numbers, you know, from our church, they seem like people are watching, but I know some people out there are not watching, you know, because sometimes they'll text message me and they'll say, hey, are we having service? Uh, are we opening up? And I kind of want to tell them, well, didn't you watch the service last Sunday? Um, yeah, we're opening up. Or just different things that people are oblivious to. Statistics say that 40% of those who are not, because during this virus, are not tuning in to the live stream. Now, I don't know if that's equal across the board, but, but I will say this. Praise God for you on a Thursday night or watching. Some of you guys on a Sunday, you're, you're just committed to that because to you, that's like, you know, your conviction, your faithful one. This is your church. Praise God for that. Whatever you do, don't stop seeking the Lord in his word. That's what he's saying right here. Because notice it says in verse 24, to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. And an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. I mean, there in verse 24, it says to keep you, to protect you. You know, the Proverbs, they provide the protection. Imagine you're in a fight and your arms are down. Well, when you got the Proverbs, you know, your, your hands are up. You got your guard up, right? Your doors are locked. Your windows are closed. You've got Bible bodyguards when you know the Proverbs. It, it protects you from this. He says, don't lust after her in your heart. Don't, you know, do that. Look the other way. Why not? Or why can't I? Well, because this is how a man is reduced to a crust of bread. And I don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound good. It's basically the lowest level of degradation. 
You know, what he says here in, in verse 20, my son, keep your father's command. Make sure we are, are into this Bible. In verse 27, we see the simple logic, the, the wisdom. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not feel it or, or be seared in any way? How can anyone think that there will be no consequences to such an atrocious act? Warren Wiersbe said, fire is a good thing if it is confined and controlled. It can keep us warm where we can cook our food or drive our turbines and manufacture electricity. And he says, sex is a good gift from God. But like fire, if it gets out of its commanded confines, it becomes destructive. What begins as a warm experience in the beginning burns us in the end. I'll never forget the last time I taught Proverbs and my son was only 11 years old and he asked me, he said, Dad, what are you teaching on a Thursday? And so he was too young uh, for me to give him the terminology of what we're talking about. I told him, well, I can't really tell you everything until you're 30 years old, but um, I told him this, I'm teaching on how we are to be faithful to the ones we love. And we love God. And we love our spouse. We love our future spouse. We love our children. We love our church. And that's why we have to be faithful. So, because if not, um, notice what we read here in verse 29. So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise a thief if he stills to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so restores, res- destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased though you give many gifts. This is a crime that you can't get away with. You know, the thief, if he steals because he needs food to live, like Aladdin, we can in one sense understand it. But if he gets caught, you know, he's got to pay the fine, right? But adultery is a sin. It's a crime where nothing you can do can make restitution. You know, Matthew Henry said this, the fire of lust kindles the fire of hell. Because what happens, we read there in verse 32, that he who does so destroys his own soul. Now, if a person out there has committed adultery and they're repentant, God will forgive. But a lot of times they're not repentant. And what they do is they leave their wife, they leave their kids, they go on into a new family, a new relationship. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 that they're living in adultery that they're an adulterer. And when they die, they will have destroyed their soul. See, only God sees whether or not that individual is truly repentant. Imagine choosing that girl over God, that guy over God. Imagine that, but some people do that. You know, Jesus asked that question in Matthew 16, 26, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
And so if that girl over there, and you think she's hot, and you think she's pretty or whatever, and you know, you're striking up this relationship, and you think you're safe, and you think you're okay, and you think you're strong, and you think you can go ahead and do it, listen, you're dabbling with things that might destroy you forever. And the Holy Spirit, he's the one who tells you, hey, be careful. Make sure those hedges are holy. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we see that God gives justice. You know, um, he talks about a husband who, who, uh, who, you know, you can't give him any money, man. I mean, a lot of times what ends up happening is husbands go and they kill the one that, you know, committed adultery with their wife or sometimes even the wife or sometimes themselves. There's a lot of death that surround these things. I was reading one article about the Philippines about some guy recently who killed uh, a guy. But, but at the end of the day, even that is not the ultimate fear. Uh, the ultimate fear is God. We got to know, even though the world says it's okay, um, in one sense, there was a time when the world said it wasn't. But we've drifted so far from God. Real quick, in closing, I'm going to tell you guys uh, this uh, interesting article. Um, in the, all the states of the United States of America, there's, did you know this, that there are 16 states where cheating is illegal? And so um, in some parts of the country, you can actually be fined or, or put in jail. In Arizona, uh, you can spend 30 days behind bars if you're convicted of adultery. That's uh, both offenders. In Florida, you can spend two months in jail uh, or you can be charged up to $500. In Illinois, uh, you can spend up to a year in jail. Don't you wish that these judges would kind of give them the full force of the law sometimes? You know, in Oklahoma, you can be fined $500 and spend five years in jail. In Wisconsin, I like this, you can be fined $10,000 and spend three years behind bars. But then I was reading this whole thing and my heart was broken for whatever reason. This is a weird one. In Maryland... The fine for adultery is $10. I thought, $10? That's weird. And I, and I think they're like, well, you know, we got to do something. And so that's how they see it. Like, it ain't no thing. But God sees it for what it is. And so um, I pray, you guys, that in going through the Proverbs, that the Lord will give us the wisdom that we need, uh, the wisdom that we need over wealth, wisdom over work, wisdom over wickedness, whether it be that person or the practices or the immoral woman. And it all begins with the wisest thing you can ever do, and that is submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, that's a first-time decision for you. You just say, Jesus, I, I need you. I'm a sinner. And, uh, and you died for me on the cross. He did that, rose again. You know, if that's you out there and you need to give your life to Christ for the first time, that's the wisest thing you can ever do. That's where wisdom begins. But then if you're out there as a Christian, and at the end of the day, you are not surrendered, completely broken of your own will and ways, then I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that today you would make a decision to lay it all down there at the foot of the cross and just say, Lord, you died for me. I belong to you and I give you my life. And so I pray as a church 
that we would have that